There we go. All right. Um, well, last time we're doing the left side of this chart, the Bible chart here. What section are we in? Minor prophets. How many minor prophets are there? Twelve. Yeah, just like the tribes of Israel. And we're doing the last two this morning. Zechariah and Malachi. And um, if we put all these together, how do they compare in length with, uh, say, the major prophet Isaiah? Yeah, actually they're a little bit shorter. But they're pretty close. Yeah, it's pretty surprising. You've got one book of Isaiah and you got 12 of these. But Wow. Um, anyone want to take a stab at what would be the probably the most difficult books in the Old Testament to understand? <laughs> All right. There's one, Zechariah, yeah. Daniel. And Matthew said Ezekiel. So yeah, I would put those three as the most difficult. Ezekiel, Daniel, and Zechariah. And what book in the New Testament is most similar to those? Revelation, yes. Um, in fact, not only is Revelation similar, but Revelation quotes from all three of these books. Now, now Revelation never quotes in the way ordinary books quote. It doesn't say, as the Scriptures say. It just uses the words, and you're supposed to figure it out. Um, but it definitely uses a lot of quotations from Zechariah. <laughs> it's a tribute book. <laughs> So, um, Zechariah, we've got the outline here. Um, uh, what, when, was, when was Zechariah written? What? Um, it was after the return. Okay, after the return from captivity, yes. Um, now, what, what was one of the first things they did after they got back from the captivity? Yeah, started building the temple. The, the walls were later, quite a while later. Um, yeah, a lot of the people were dead by the time they built the walls. Um, they started building the temple. And why didn't they finish? Yeah, the enemies wrote letters back to the big, the big chief and he said, yeah, tell them to stop. So who was the prophet that got them to start building again? This is from last week. Haggai. Haggai, that's right. Haggai got them to start building again, and not only did they start building, they finished. Now, shortly after Haggai started, Zechariah got his first message. So when when Zechariah gets gives his first message, it's in the middle of Haggai's messages, because each of them give dates. But Zechariah continues longer than Haggai. Um, his messages are after Haggai's finished. So there's a very close together in time. All right, so let's just get started. And um, the uh, the book begins with a call to repentance. Now, it's not quite the same as Haggai's call to repentance. Haggai's call was, um, you know, you guys are fixing up your houses just fine. What about God's house? Um, but Zechariah is going a little bit deeper than this. Um, in verse 4, 
Um, God says, Do not be like your fathers to whom the former prophets proclaimed, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Return now from your evil ways and from your evil deeds, but they did not listen or give heed to me, declares the Lord. Now the former prophets, I mean, when when were what kind of period is Zechariah thinking of here? time of the kings. Yeah, back in the days of the kings, before the captivity, those are the former prophets. So you got the later prophets who are after the captivity. There's only three of them that we have writings of. And you have the former prophets that, that includes um, all the prophets we've already read about, except Haggai. Um, and in each case, and with with. We could we could leave the, we could leave Daniel out, but in each case of the others, God was saying, "Return now from your evil ways and from your evil deeds." And people didn't listen. And look what happened. And in fact, in verse five, your fathers, where are they? And the prophets who live forever, but did not my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, overtake your fathers? So people die. God's words live forever, and God's words come to pass. Alright, now we have these eight visions um, beginning with the patrol of the earth. And I have pictures for some of these. I don't know whether these pictures are helpful, but I thought they were pretty cool, so I put them in here. <laughs> Something to look at while we read these stories. Um, yeah, how many horses are there in this patrol? Four horses, yeah, the different colors. And um, we're going to have horses again toward the end. In fact, at the very end of these eight visions. So, they, but at the end, they're they're pulling chariots. In this case, I don't think it mentions chariots. Um, but in verse eleven, they answered the angel of the Lord who was standing on the myrtle trees and said, "We have patrolled the earth, and behold, all the earth is peaceful and quiet." All right. Now, here's the question. Is that good or bad? Well, since they're bad people, it's bad. We don't want bad people to be peaceful. <laughs> yes. This is very tricky. When you read this, you read that and you think, oh, this sounds nice. No, it's not nice. Because the reason they're peaceful and quiet is because they have subjected God's people, they've put them under their thumbs, they're basically slaves, and... They're so powerful, no one can do anything about it. So yeah, it's peaceful. But in verse 12, the angel Lord said, O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no compassion for Jerusalem and the cities of Judah with which you have been indignant these 70 years? Now the 70 years are up at this point. They've been up for some decades. But, and, and we might say, well yeah, the 70 years are up and they've gone back. They've gone back, but they're still slaves. They're still beaten down. They don't have they don't have walls around the city of Jerusalem at the time when, when Zechariah is writing. And so in verse fifteen, God says, "But I am angry with the nations who are at ease." See, here's the, at ease corresponds with peaceful and quiet back in verse twelve or verse eleven. I'm angry with the nations who are at ease. For while I was only a little angry, they furthered the disaster. Their job was to punish Judah. But they went farther than what God's anger wanted. So now it's time for them to, to um, be punished in turn. Which brings us to the next um, 
vision. I don't have a picture for this one, the horns and the craftsmen. In the Bible, what does a horn represent? Strength, power. Um, Because it's an animal horn we're talking about. Um, You think about a rhinoceros horn. You don't want to be on the pointy end of a rhinoceros horn. Um, So in, in this vision of the craftsmen of the horns, what happens? What do the craftsmen do? Yeah, their job is to cut the horns off. Um, so, um, which I remember, my grandparents used to have a, a very few cows, but they would always have the, they would always dehorn their cows, because it was just um, uh, a lot safer to be around a cow with <laughs> that didn't have horns. And um, I don't think they do use a saw for it like a craftsman. I think they had some kind of medicine they put on it, but. Um, you take the horns off of an animal and it's not nearly as fierce as it was without that. And so you take the horns off these wicked nations and they're not going to be fierce anymore. And that's the point of this vision. Alright, now we have a measuring line. i got a picture for that. Here's a guy pulling this measuring line. What's he going to try to measure? Jerusalem. He wants to measure Jerusalem. Yes. And um, But then someone tells him what? Verse 4. This is chapter 2, verse 4. He's going to measure Jerusalem until he hears what? It's going to be inhabited without walls. Yeah, Jerusalem will be inhabited without walls because of the multitude of men and cattle within. It'll be so big, you know, you can't even surround it with walls. Well, uh, isn't that kind of dangerous for a city to be without walls? Verse 5. Aha, what's the answer in verse 5? The Lord. I'll be a wall of fire around her. Have we ever had a time in history when God was a wall of fire for His people? No, let them in the, with Moses, He was a pillar. A pillar of fire. And you're actually close to what I'm looking for. He was a barrier between the Egyptians. Yes, when the Egyptians came, the pillar of fire went and stood in between the Egyptians and Israel. So he was a wall of fire at that point. And then pretty soon they had walls of water as well. Um, So the point of this vision is there's no point in measuring how big Jerusalem is. It's going to be huge. And no need for walls for Jerusalem. God's going to be their wall. Alright, so then we go to a vision of Joshua the high priest. And this... Um, in this particular um, well you know let me go back I should have read verse 10 I I wanted to do that one sing for joy and be glad O daughter of Zion for behold I am coming and I will dwell in your midst declares the Lord so these are all predictions of the future of course we understand these are really our predictions of the messianic age the age in which we live because Jerusalem, not too many years after Zechariah wrote, got walls. They had physical walls. They had physical walls in the days of Jesus. But he's talking about the time when they won't need walls anymore. God will be the wall. That We're in the process of seeing that fulfilled in our day. Alright, now the high priest. Joshua is the high priest. 
And we had, we've had his name before. I'm pretty sure his name was actually mentioned in the book of Haggai. Because um, it was under Joshua they rebuilt the temple. But in this case, it's a vision of Joshua and who else? Satan. Yeah, we don't have Satan too many times in the Bible, do we? Um, where's the big time we've had so far with Satan? Job. Yeah, the book of Job. Yeah. What does his name mean, Satan? The accuser. The accuser, yeah. He certainly did enjoy accusing Job, didn't he? And what's he doing now with, with um, Joshua? Accusing. He's accusing him, that's right. Does he have any reason to accuse him? Yep. <laughs> what's the reason? He's got sins. He's got sins. And the sins are represented in the vision by what? Filthy garments. Filthy garments. Now, of all the people in the in the Old Testament, who were the most fancily dressed? The high priest was, yes. I mean, it, it, we've, we've, we've seen pictures before. I forgot to bring one. Sorry, but I should have, should have brought a picture of one. But we've seen the picture and, you know, beautiful blue and, and purple and other, and then expensive gems and gold, all that. But now he's got these filthy garments. So, what's going to be the solution here for the filthy garments? <laughs> Take those filthy garments off. And then in verse 5, I said, I assume that's Zechariah, let them put a clean turban on his head. And so they do that and, and they, they dressed him up with, with good clothes. Well, this is a prediction of what? salvation of Jesus. Yes, this is the prediction of, of the Messiah. Yeah. And and look what he said and he in verse eight. Now listen, Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who are sitting in front of you, indeed they are men who are a symbol. For behold, I am going to bring in my servant what? The branch. The branch. For behold the stone that I have set before Joshua on one stone are seven eyes. Behold I will engrave an inscription on it, declares the Lord of hosts and I will remove the iniquity of that land in one day. Now, we've had this branch thing before. What does the branch mean? Well, it's from the house of David. Yes. This goes back to the, the, the prophecy in Isaiah where the tree of David gets chopped down and a branch comes out of its roots. And it's a prophecy of Jesus. He was born from the family of David, but it had been chopped down. Nobody in the time of Jesus was reigning as a king, even though David's descendants reigned for hundreds of years. The tree was chopped down, but a branch comes out. And, and so this... Uh, Jeremiah, I'm pretty sure, was, was one of the ones that used this term branch. So it's a familiar term. When, when the people would hear Zechariah mention the branch, they would understand where well, he's on with the Messiah. And so the Messiah is going to remove the iniquity of the land in one day. So, um, just as Joshua had filthy garments, all of us had, had filthy garments. And Jesus took those garments off, washed them away in His blood, and gave us new garments. And the new garments are His righteousness. That's what we wear today. All right, um, the golden lampstand and the two olive trees. I got a picture for that one. The um, 
The lampstand, of course, represents... It's a picture of what in the Old Testament? Not a symbol, but an actual thing. Where do they use this lampstand? Yeah, in the tabernacle, they had a lampstand. Seven branches, and that's how many branches this one has. And the reason we know how it looked is that when the Romans sacked Jerusalem in A.D. 70, they made a picture of it and engraved it on a... um, a monument in Rome. You can actually go see the monument today. It has a picture of of this seven-branched lampstand because the, the soldiers were, were carrying it off. Um, it's solid gold. weighs 75 pounds. 75 pounds of solid gold. In the temple, they had ten of these. It was a bigger, bigger room. Um, and what would they burn in the, in the lamp? Olive oil. Olive oil. So that's why you have the two olive trees on each side, the, that's what supplies the oil for these lamps. Um, so this is chapter 4. Um, now, when we think of seven lamps, where else in the Bible do we have seven lamps? Revelation, yes. Chapters 2 and 3. And that is an obvious reference back to the, the lampstand in the Old Testament, including this one. Um, and here's an in- interpretation. Verse 6 is an interpretation of this. This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, saying, Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Now, we have to understand what olive oil represented in the Old Testament. They used olive oil to anoint people for at least two offices. Can anyone tell me what those two offices were? The high priest. The high priest and? The, the, the king. The king, yes. Yeah, remember when Samuel poured the oil on Saul? Yeah. All right, so those two are the ones who are anointed. Um and I suspect in verse 14 when it says these are the two anointed ones who are standing by the Lord of the whole earth, I expect he may be referring at least in part to the two offices of high priest and king. Because um, what we're going to see uh, later on that those two offices are going to be actually combined in, into one. But um, you have these two anointed ones, high priest and king, um, but that doesn't get to the root of the issue of what the olive oil represents because another one that was anointed in the Old Testament was often the prophet and yet I don't know that the prophet was ever anointed with oil what was the prophet anointed with? Spirit. the Holy Spirit that's right um, and in fact the word Christ means the anointed one. Jesus was anointed by the Holy, by the Holy Spirit. Remember at his baptism. Uh, so I think what's what's being said here in verse six, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says Lord of hosts, is this. In 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 Zechariah's day, the, the whole lampstand represented Israel. Their job was to be a light to the whole world, showing the world the true God. But they did not do it by their own strength, by their own power. 
They did it by the Holy Spirit, which is what the, the olive trees are representing here. The, the, the oil is the oil of the Holy Spirit. So when you come to the book of Revelation, that all is, in, is supposed to be understood. John, John sometimes assumes more than what may be the case. He assumes we really know the Old Testament well before we come to the book of Revelation. Um, but here we are, a church represented by one of those seven lampstands in the book of Revelation. We are given the job of being the light of God in, in this community. We're supposed to show Bangor what the true God is like. Now that's a huge job. But we don't do it by our own might. We do it by the power of the Spirit. It's God who is giving us the power. That's what this vision is about. Alright, the flying scroll. And we have a picture for that one, although that's not quite the way I would have drawn this picture, but that's okay. I mean, what's the, the size of the scroll was 20 cubits and its width 10 cubits. It's probably not too far off. <laughs> Maybe a little bit large, but this is the best picture I could find. And what does this scroll represent? Yeah, God's law, yes. Um, uh, in verse verse 2, it gives a size, and in verse 3, this is the curse that is going forth over the face of the whole land. Surely everyone who steals will be purged away according to the writing on one side, and everyone who swears will be purged away according to the writing on the other side. I assume he means swears falsely. Um, so it's gonna, this thing's going to fly around and it's going to get all these evil people. So the... Um, the vision is a vision of putting sin, of judging sin, and getting rid of sin from the land. And the next one is similar to the um, the ephah or a big basket, and inside the ephah is a woman who represents what? Evil. Evil. Yeah. So I thought that picture did a pretty good job of showing <laughs> evil. And, my understanding is an ephah is about a bushel in size, and I can't imagine a woman fitting inside a bushel, so I'm not quite sure how the vision works. Small, small. This is a, a small woman, yeah. Uh, where'd they carry this basket to? Shinar. Shinar, yes, which is the region of what? Babylon. Yeah, that's the area of Babylon. It, it's first mentioned in the Old Testament in connection with what famous story? The Tower of Babel, yes. And so now we're going to take all this wickedness and take it right back there where it started from. And um, then the final, the eighth vision, are the four chariots. I have a picture for that one. Each each chariot has a different set of um, colored horses. Um, doesn't say how many horses per chariot. But um, our artist artist picks three per chariot, which is that's a good number. I mean, your chariot could go pretty fast with three chariot with three horses. Um, and what are these chariots supposed to do? Control the earth. Yeah. Now they're a little bit different than the first set. I think. I think the first set of horses were just kind of checking out how things are. But these these are war chariots, and I think they're going to actually do something because in verse eight. Then he cried out to me and spoke to me, saying, 
See, those who are going to the land of the north have appeased my wrath in the land of the north. What could they have done in the land of the north to appease God's wrath? Punish those people. Yeah, punish those people. What exactly chariots do? They go and they they beat up on the 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 enemy. So that's the end of our um, eight visions, and that's the end of my pictures. I don't have any more pictures. Sorry. (laughs) Um, The next story, though, and this appears not to be a vision, but actually happened, was the crowning of Joshua the high priest. so in verse 11, take silver and gold, make an ornate crown and set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Now this was not in the law. The law did not have a crown for the, for the high priest. He, the, the high priest was not the king. The high priest and, and the king were two separate offices. But now he has a crown. Then say to him, thus says the Lord of hosts, behold, a man whose name is what? Branch. Branch. Aha. We know who that is. For he will branch out from where he is and he will build the temple of the Lord. Yes, it is he who will build the temple of the Lord and he who will bear the honor and sit and rule on his throne. Thus he will be a priest on his throne and the council of peace will be between the two offices. Wow. When was that fulfilled? Well, not, not holy. Well, Jesus is both priest and king, and that's what that was foretelling. Now, we had that picture before in this Old Testament. Um, does anyone? Can anyone think of a... T- well, let me ask a different question. Can anyone think in the past where we had a, a man that was both priest and king at the same time? Uh, the, the one who blessed... Uh... Melchizedek, the one who blessed Abraham. Yes. And Abraham gave him what? A tithe. A tithe, yes. Um, and in connection with Melchizedek, I'm thinking of a prophecy of the Messiah. You don't remember what that is. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Yes. And that prophecy, I believe it's Psalm 110, was predicting the time when the Messiah would be both priest and king. Now, we did have a time in the Old Testament when a king tried to be priest. Do you remember when that was? The the, the king who entered the temple? Yes. Uh, His name was Uzzah. What happened to him? Uh, He was run off by the the, the legitimate priest. Uh, After what happened? He got leprosy. He got leprosy, yes. Yeah, God gave him the leprosy. The priest ran him out. And he wasn't king anymore because he couldn't be king and have leprosy. Um, so that was God's judgment on a king that wants to be priest. And yet, here we have the prophecy in the Psalms that there's one coming who's going to be both priest and king. And now we have a prophecy here in Zechariah. There's one coming called the branch who will be both priest and king. God is preparing the way for, for His Son to come. Um, normally, that's not a good idea to have the same person be both priest and king. And the reason it's not a good idea is because of sin. The more power you give any one man, the more sinful he's going to become. Um, 
because the high priest had a lot of power, the king had a lot of power, but if you keep them separate, they would tend to balance each other out, which is what happened in Judah during those years even when you had bad kings. Um, but with Jesus, we don't have to worry about balancing out. He's perfectly righteous. He can be both and do a good job of both. All right. Chapters 7 and 8 are about fasting and the future. Um, the people came and asked a question in verse 3 Shall I weep in the fifth month and abstain as I have done these many years? Does anyone have any idea why they were weeping in the fifth month? All right, yes. They had three different months that they remembered with fasting. Um, and I forget which one it goes with one. What? But there was the fifth, the seventh, and the tenth month. And I think the tenth month was actually the last thing. The tenth month was when, the, when Jerusalem was destroyed. But one of them was when the, the siege started, and I forget the other one. But anyway, they, they knew what each of the three were. And that all had to do with the time at the end of Zedekiah's reign when Jerusalem was conquered and they were carried into captivity. So they proclaimed days of fasting for each of those. And for the last 70 years plus, they've been fasting at those times. So now the question is, should we continue doing it? Well, in the first place, God never told them to do it. It's not in the law. This is something they chose to do themselves. It's not wrong, but it doesn't mean they have to keep doing it forever. But they would like the priest to give a ruling on this. Should we keep doing this? And I'm sure they're thinking from the standpoint of, well, you know, now we're back in the land. You know, the captivity's over. Should we still do this? But the answer God gives is a little bit more than what they wanted, I guess. I should say. Verse 5. Say to all the people of the land and to the priests, when you fasted and mourned in the fifth and seventh months, these 70 years, was it actually for me that you fasted? When you eat and drink, do you not eat for yourselves and do you not drink for yourselves? So, they were going through the motions is what God was saying. Um, you know, it, it looked good, but there was no, there was no real power in it. Um, so what He tells them to do instead... In verse 9, Thus says Lord of the hosts, dispense true justice and practice kindness and compassion each to his brother. If you're fasting, it should be fasting for your sins, and if you're fasting for your sins, you should repent and not do them anymore. <laughs> so practice compassion instead of behaving like you're behaving. Um, then in chapter 8, in verse 3, Thus says the Lord, I will return to Zion and I will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. Then Jerusalem will be called the city of truth and the mountain of the Lord of hosts will be called the holy mountain. So he's looking into the far distant future, the age in which we live now. And so in verse 19, thus says the Lord of hosts, the fast of the fourth, the fast of the fifth, and the fast of the seventh, and the fast of the tenth months will become joy, gladness, and cheerful feasts for the house of Judah, so love, truth, and peace. God, God is going to be, turn their mourning into gladness when He brings the Messiah. So now, in the next few chapters, we have the advent and rejection of the Messiah. Now, the Jews back then would have said, we would never reject the Messiah. But in fact, it's already been predicted. Who's the most famous prophet to reject, 
who predicted the rejection of the Messiah by the people. Isaiah. Yeah, Isaiah did. Um, and I mean, in, in several chapters, he lets he lets the people know that they're going to reject the one who came for them. And now, in in these three chapters, chapters nine, uh, ten, and eleven, we have the same picture. Um, although chapter nine, I'm not chapter nine doesn't quite fit this same picture because chapter nine, at least on the surface, is a prediction against the nations around about J- Jerusalem. He starts with uh, Damascus in verse 1. Verse 3, Tyre. For Tyre built herself a fortress and piled up silver like dust and gold like mire in the streets. Behold, the Lord will dispossess her and cast her wealth into the sea and she will be consumed with fire. Who was the previous prophet we had that predicted a very famous prophecy against Tyre? This was Ezekiel. Yeah, he, he predicted that Nebuchadnezzar would conquer Tyre. Then later on in the book of Ezekiel, he said, well, Nebuchadnezzar you know, worked hard at it, but he didn't accomplish it, so I'm going to reward Nebuchadnezzar by giving him Egypt. But he never did specifically say, that means Tyre gets off. <laughs> and so Zechariah comes back and re-prophesies against Tyre. And in verse 5, he prophesies against Gaza, one of the cities of the Philistines. And in fact, all three of these cities were conquered by Alexander the Great. He came through, he conquered Damascus, he conquered Tyre, he conquered Gaza. Um, he didn't conquer Jerusalem. He, 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 was, very, he was very nice to Jerusalem. Um, and this was predicted in verse 8. But I will camp around my house because of an army, because of him who passes by and returns, and no oppressor will pass over them anymore, for now I have seen with my eyes. So in verse 9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. When was that fulfilled? Yeah, when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the donkey, called the, um, the triumphal entry. And now, jump forward to ver- chapter 11. In verse 5, or verse 4, the Lord says, Pasture the flock doomed to slaughter. Those who buy them, slay them, and go unpunished. And each of those who sell them says, Blessed be the Lord, for I have become rich, and their own shepherds have no pity on them. This is a picture we've seen in several of the prophecies for this. The shepherds of the sheep are supposed to be the leaders of Israel. But they're just looking out for themselves. They don't care about the sheep at all. So, in... Um, in verse 12, I said to them, and, and I is, is the Lord, but the, He is the one who is being a shepherd here. So I said to them, if it is good in your sight, give me my wages, but if not, never mind. So they weighed out how much? 30 shekels. 30 shekels of silver is my wages. Then the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, that magnificent price at which I was valued by them. So I took the thirty shekels of silver and threw it, threw them to the potter in the house of the Lord. <laughs> when was that fulfilled? <clears throat> yeah. Well, he 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 tried to take them and give them to the priests, but because they'd given them to him, they wouldn't take it. So then he just 
threw it into the temple. What are they going to do? They, they, now they've got the 30 pieces of silver. So they said, well, we'll go buy a field to bury poor people in. And they bought the potter's field. <laughs> so he threw it into the temple, but it went to the potter. It was the price that they valued the shepherd at. Jesus being the good shepherd. Um, and then the final section is the advent and redemption of the Messiah. Uh, chapters 12-14. through 14. Um, in verse 9, in that day I will set about to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. Um, now, we've had prophecies before that ended with a similar prophecy. All the nations coming up against Jerusalem. The, the, the one we spent the most time on because it was the longest prophecy was in Ezekiel, Gog and Magog. And we had another prophet, I think it was Hosea, but I may be confusing it with another one that also ended with this very similar prophecy. And now we have Zechariah ending again with this prophecy. All these nations coming up against Jerusalem and God judges them. But then, the story takes a strange twist in verse 10. I will pour out on the house of David on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication so that they will look on Me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. When was that fulfilled? Well, it's actually quoted in John 19, verse 37 when they stabbed Jesus' side and the blood and water came out. But that was not the final fulfillment of this. That was just pointing out they pierced, him whom they pierced. But in Revelation 1, verse 7, it's quoted again. And it's quoted in the standpoint of they will mourn for Him whom they have pierced. We're the ones that have pierced Jesus. We're the ones that are mourning. This is the prophecy of us. Chapter 13, verse 1, In that day a fountain will be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for impurity. Again, talking about Christ. And chapter 14, verse 3, Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as when He fights on a day of battle. And verse 8, And in that day living waters will flow out of Jerusalem, half of them toward the eastern sea and the other half toward the western sea. It will be in summer as well as in winter. What book have we read before that had these living waters coming out of the temple? Ezekiel. Same one. You notice the order here. You had the big battle of Gog and Magog. Then you had the waters coming out of the temple. You have the same thing in Ezekiel 14. God goes forth to fight against all these nations that are fighting against His people. And then living water comes out of the temple. Alright. We've got a few minutes to cover the last book here. Malachi. We don't know exactly when Malachi wrote, but it was some some years after the temple was finished, apparently. Um, in fact, long enough for the people to have kind of backslid. It just seems a shame that God's people can never stay faithful for very long. They always have to backslide. So, um, we'll start with um, God's covenant love for Israel. Just the first five verses. In verse 2, I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? So God asks, 
Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau, and I have made his mountains a desolation and appointed his inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness. Um, so the whole book is start, the theme is God loves them, but unfortunately they don't seem to be responding to God's love. So um, we have Israel's unfaithfulness in the next couple of chapters, beginning with the unfaithfulness of the priests. In um, in verse six, a son honors his father and a servant his master. Then, if I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my respect? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests, who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? They're really surprised, but you know they just didn't think they were doing that. But look what he says in verse eight. But when you present the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you present the lame and sick, is it not evil? Why not offer it to your governor? Would he be pleased with you or would he receive you kindly as the Lord of hosts? They were offering sacrifices, yes. But they were the junk sacrifices that nobody wanted to keep around. But hey, you're going to kill it anyway. What difference does it make? You're just going to burn it up. Well, they were despising God. That was the issue. Um, So verse 10, Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the gates that you might not uselessly kindle fire on my altars. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord of hosts, nor will I accept an offering from you. <laughs> That's pretty powerful. <laughs> be better just... I mean, I wonder how many churches today, and I worry about you know whether we might be among the number, but how many churches today is the Lord thinking to Himself, I wish they'd just shut and lock those doors. I'm sure there are plenty. I just pray we don't become one of those. Um, in chapter 2, still talking to the priests in verse 7, for the lips of a priest should preserve knowledge and men should seek instruction from his mouth for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But as for you, you have turned aside from the way you have caused many to stumble by the instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. So their job was to teach the truth to the people, but they weren't teaching the truth. They didn't, they didn't believe the truth themselves. So then he turns to the people, starting in verse 10. Um, And in verse 11, he says, Judah has dealt treacherously, and an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. What's he mean when he says he's married the daughter of a foreign god? Worship them. I don't worship them. Well... Did you have a different idea, Matthew? Well, I was thinking along the lines of John there. Yeah, well, it might have led to that, but I think the marriage is actually literal. What they're doing, they're marrying women from the countries around them who are worshippers of foreign gods. So that's what they mean by they married the daughter of a foreign god. So this is talking about the, the seriousness of who you marry. And what book, in fact, more than one book, have we had where the people were committing that very sin and had to be judged for it? You know, the earliest books of the Old Testament. Mm. No, I'm thinking of later books. <laughs> Ezra and Nehemiah. Ezra and Nehemiah, yeah. Which, that was not a whole lot, a whole lot, not many years before the book of Malachi. 
And in Ezra, they had to judge these people. And then in Nehemiah, they had to go back and do it again. They've done it over again. And now here in the book of Malachi, they're doing it again. They don't seem to get the message. What do you think would be the application today for marriage? What about Christians? You marry a non-Christian, you marry, you're marrying the daughter of a foreign god. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't think God uh, thinks, oh well, it doesn't matter today who you marry. Just you know, it's serious. Um, when when Paul in First Corinthians seven talked about Christians who were married to non-Christians, I think he was talking about people who were married already before they became a Christian. Um, it's not a matter of something they did after they were a Christian. And these people, of course, were Jews all their lives. They were never supposed to marry these, these women. But they, they, that's exactly what they'd done. Then another thing in verse 13, this is another thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping, with groaning, because He no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. Yet you say, for what reason? Because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth, against whom you have dealt treacherously, Though she is your companion and your wife by covenant, what were they doing treacherously against the wives of their youth? In some cases, they were divorcing. Exactly. Verse 16 For I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel, and him who covers his garment with wrong, says the Lord of hosts. So take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. They were divorcing their wives, and God says, I'm not going to listen to you anymore. You have been unfaithful. And so. The final section of Malachi is the Lord's coming. In um, toward the, the last verse of chapter two, all the way through the end of the book, in um, in chapter three, behold, I am going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when He appears? For He is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. This is talking about the Messiah who is coming. Verse 7, From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from My statutes and have not kept them. Return to Me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Well, in the next few verses, what were they doing that they needed to return from? In verse 8, what was their sin? Giving the tithes. Right, they weren't giving the tithes. So he says they were robbing him. Will a man rob God? And they were robbing him. So finally, in verse 16, then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another, and the Lord gave attention and heard it. And a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear the Lord and who esteem his name. And so the last chapter Behold, the day of coming, burning like a furnace. And all the arrogant and every evildoer will be chaff. And the day that is coming will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear My name, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, and you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. Verse 5, Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children of the fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. What's that a prophecy of? John the Baptist, Baptist, yes. And he came in preparation for the Lord Himself coming to try to get the people ready for it. Any questions on the 
last couple books here. Next week we start the New Testament. Appreciate everyone's help.